Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of John. John chapter 14 is our passage. I'm going to be working my way through most of the chapter um, here and there. I'll explain that in a minute, but to get us started this morning, let's read verses 10 and following. Here's what it says. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for this word that you have given to us. And I pray that you would speak to us in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Knowing our identity is fundamental to being able to function well in society. This points to how we were created. We have to know who we are in order to know what we are supposed to do. And so throughout this month of January, we have been taking time to consider who we are, what our identity is. So we spent some time on the first part of the month talking about the fact that in Christ, we are loved. And then we talked about how in Christ, we are righteous and that in Christ, we are victorious. And today we're talking about this truth that in Christ, we are powerful. Specifically, the power that we are talking about today is the power to fulfill the mission. And we're going to see that the power to fulfill our mission flows out of our identity as those who belong to the family of God. And just so that you know where we're going uh, here on Sunday mornings, we are returning to our series through the Pentateuch uh, next week. Uh, so we finished Leviticus a few months ago. Next week, we're starting a series in the book of Numbers. And uh, if that scares you just a little bit, I would remind you that Leviticus probably scared you a little bit before we got into that. Uh, we were kind of worried that that might be a little bit stuffy, a little bit hard to slog through, but we did get through it. And hopefully, and I think this is true, I know this is true for me, and I think I got the same kind of feedback from at least some of you. Uh, we, got th we didn't just get through it, but we saw some new insights, saw how it connects to the gospel. And so I hope that we'll be able to do the same thing in the book of Numbers. I also want to remind you that in the book of Numbers are some of the great stories about the wilderness journey of Israel. It's in the book of Numbers that we see the bronze serpent for example, and we see uh, the second time the water comes from the rock and we see the spies entering the promised land and, and uh, Balaam and the talking donkey and things like that. So some of the great stories of Israel, these come out of the book of Numbers. So we're excited about uh, getting into that next week. Uh, for this morning, the four points that we're going to be working through, they're printed on the back of your bulletin. You'll see them there and they're fairly simple. Four things that we have in Christ. In Christ, we have a home. In Christ, we have a family. In Christ, we have a story. In Christ, we have a mission. The power to fulfill our mission flows out of our identity as those 
who belong to the family of God. In Christ, first of all, we have a home. This is important to us. Because I, I suspect, if you're like me, there is deep in your heart a sense of homelessness. This is especially true if you're like me in another way. If you're like me in the sense that you are living in a place where you did not grow up or where your parents did not grow up. Uh, I realized this some time ago, that there is not really any geographical location that I can call home. Uh, I, some of you know this, I was born uh, in Ohio in a little city called Napoleon. Both of my parents were born in small towns in Ohio, but we moved to Virginia when I was just a, a little kid. And uh, we never really acclimated to Virginia, I would say. Never really felt like home to me. I remember playing with with other kids there. And, and in Virginia, they don't have a real deep southern drawl like they do in places like Alabama or, or some other places further south. But there's definitely a southern accent in Virginia. And I didn't have that, right? So I, I knew I didn't belong there. But the strange thing was, coming back here to visit grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins, my cousins would make fun of me for talking like a southerner. <laughs> so I didn't feel like I belonged here either. In fact, even after we moved here, uh, a few years ago, somebody commented to me that I did have just a little slight southern twang. And, uh, you know, I, just, I don't know where I belong. I really don't. Uh, after Laura and I were married, we, we moved away from central Virginia down to Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, we were there for a few years. Then we moved to a city in southern Virginia. And from there, we moved here. And I realized that I talked to people who, who were born and raised in a particular area. And in some cases, whose parents were born and raised in a particular area. And they feel a sense of belonging. And I can't say I really feel the same thing. Right? There's no place that I can claim. So I feel this sense of homelessness just a little bit. And I don't mean that to sound, you know, I don't mean that to sound like, woe is me, self-pitying. I just mean to say I feel that sense of I don't really belong completely, right? But I suspect that's true even of you if you are somebody who was born and raised here and your parents were born and raised here. I suspect you can still relate to that because even if that's true for you and you do feel a connection to your place, there are still some times in your life, aren't there, when you feel like you don't belong, when you feel like a stranger, when you wonder where your true home is. And the gospel speaks into this in John 14. The gospel speaks to this need for a true home. Look at what he says. Verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. We can view these verses through the lens of three promises that Jesus offers us. First of all, there's the promise of comfort. Second, there's the promise of welcome. And third, there's the promise of directions. The promise of, of comfort and welcome and directions. Jesus begins by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus was leaving the disciples. He had just told them that he was leaving them back in chapter 13 in verse 33. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He tells them that he is leaving, and he also tells them that they can't come with him, and he knows that this is going to be heartbreaking to them. And so here in chapter 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. But the question that I ask as I read this is, 
I mean, aside from the fact that they are not going to see somebody who they've come to love very much, why would their hearts be troubled? They still have their home, right? They're not in their geographical home. They're in Jerusalem where, you know, they're, they're from Galilee, but they could go back to Galilee. They could go back to their homes. They can go back to their families. They can go back to their, their occupations. Why is Jesus saying to them, don't be troubled. Don't worry. I'm preparing a home for you. My father's house has many rooms. I'm going to come and take you there. Why, why would they need this promise that he was going to take them home if they already had a home? And it just points to this fact that they didn't have a home in this earth. It points to the fact that none of us actually have a home in this earth. Even, even the disciples, even you or I who feel at home to a certain extent in this earth, we don't really have our home here. That sense of homelessness or homesickness that we sometimes feel, that sense of not belonging, of wondering if we're strangers, wondering if there's anybody who really understands us. That sense is there for a reason. It's telling you, you're not home. This isn't your home. And that's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. He's saying, I'm going, I want to comfort you with the fact that though you are not home yet, I am going to bring you home. And look at how he talks about home. Home, he says, is where he is. I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. That's the definition of home. The definition of true home is where Jesus is. It's not, it's not the place where we feel comfortable. It's not some great mansion built for us in glory on streets of gold, whatever songs might say about it. True home is the presence of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus comforts his disciples with these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. He, he gives them the promise of comfort. He gives them the promise of welcome as well. I don't know if you ever had this experience. Uh, again, <laughs> there's always a danger as a preacher of imparting my own neuroses onto you as a congregation, transference or something, you know. So, so maybe this is not something that you can relate to, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. Uh, maybe you had this experience when you were a kid of being invited into the home of a neighborhood friend. Maybe it's a home that you had never gone into before, but it's a friend that you played with many times, and he says, come on in, let's go get a snack, or let's play with some toys in my, in my room. And so you go into their house, right? And then you see their father or mother, who you've seen before outside, but you've never seen them in their own home before. And there's that moment... <laughs> see, I remember this very poignantly. I don't know if anybody else, any other of you do. There's that moment of tension anxiety where you think, okay, is this parent going to be happy that I'm in their house? Or is there going to be a hurried, whispered conversation off to the side, and the friend is going to come and say, we actually got to leave? And no, that never happened. But maybe if you can't even relate to that, maybe you can just relate to the general sense of you know, going to stay with somebody for an extended period of time and, and having that feeling, you know, I don't want to overstay my welcome. I don't want to be a burden. Can you relate to that? Jesus gives us a promise that we never have to worry about that. We never have to worry about there being a whispered conversation between him and his father where he comes back and says, actually, I was wrong. We can't have the snack that I said. Let's leave. No worry about that. He gives us a promise of welcome. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have t would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And by the way, this translation that says, in my father's house are many rooms, 
I think that is the best way to read this. New American Standard will say, in my father's house are many dwelling places, which is a very good literal translation, but it's a little wooden. But what I don't want you to think of is what the King James says, in my father's house are many mansions, although that's a more traditional reading. And the reason that I don't want you to think about it that way is because although it does convey the magnificence of the promise that Jesus is giving, it also conveys a sense of isolation. That's very American, very Western, isn't it? We are not invited into a city where each of us will dwell in our own mansion and go out whenever we feel like it and the rest of the time just be all by ourselves. We are invited to share a home with God. In my Father's house are many rooms. We're going to be roommates with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We will be in such intimate proximity to the Son and to the Father that we won't even have to leave to go to our own homes. That will be home. So we have the promise of comfort, the promise of welcome, and we have the promise of directions. Again, this probably ties back to the fact that I've never really fully belonged anywhere for very long. But uh, in all the different places that I've lived, and, and you, you guys will have had this experience too, I've had to learn how to get around, where what roads to take, where are the grocery stores, how do you get to the different places, and, and, um, and there's always been some element where I haven't known where certain things are. I remember having a conversation with a friend when we were living in Virginia, and we had lived there by that time seven or eight years, maybe, and he was trying to tell me about a new pop-up restaurant that had started in some other part of the the county, not very far from where we were, but he was trying to tell me about where this was and he was describing the roads and he was doing a good job. It wasn't one of those, you know, turn left where the, that tree used to be. It wasn't those types of directions. He was telling me good directions, but I still just didn't know, I didn't understand where he was trying to direct me. And part of this also is the fact that I have no sense of direction. Like that stereotypical male thing where you're supposed to know the points of the compass and supposed to be able to memorize twists and turns so that you can retrace your steps, that passed me completely, all right? I don't have that. That was replaced by the gene for uh, an affinity to rock music or, uh, or good food or something. I don't have that gene, though. So, I, so he was trying to describe this to me, and I just said, I, I, I can't figure out what you're talking about. And he looks at me, and he himself was not a native of that area either. And he looks at me and goes, how long have you lived here? <laughs> I've had something similar here in Ohio too. When, I, when, I, when we first moved here, somebody said to me, it'll take you a little while to, to learn the directions, but just remember, uh, the lake is always to the north. I'm still trying to figure that one out, actually. I, I realize if I get up to a high elevation and I can see the lake, then, then I'll know what direction north is. But otherwise, these are two variables. Neither one of them is constant in my mind, so that doesn't help me. And again, maybe that's just me and my direction issue. But the point is, when you're in a new area or even in an old area and you don't know where you're going, you need directions. It makes me thankful for these things. Yeah. Thomas apparently felt the same need in this conversation with Jesus, right? In verse 5, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? We need directions. And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. 
Now this is, first of all, the promise of directions. Jesus says, I'm the way. You don't need to worry about how to get there. I'll make sure you get there, right? There's a promise of guidance, the promise that you're never going to get lost if you're with Jesus. But there's something else here as well, right? This is one of the great exclusivity claims of Christianity. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus insists that there's no way to our true home except through him. Now, many are offended at this. Understandably. Let's be honest. This is an understandable point of offense. Because they'll say, isn't it arrogant? Isn't it closed-minded of Jesus to say that he is the only way to heaven? He is the only way to to this eternal joy? Isn't that closed-minded and arrogant? And the answer is, it would be. It would be closed-minded and arrogant if what Jesus is offering to us is just some kind of nice afterlife where we have a mansion all to ourselves and some kind of reward for good behavior. If that's what the afterlife is, if that's what heaven is, then it is kind of arrogant for Jesus to say, I'm the only way to get there. But that's not what Jesus is offering us. What Jesus is laying before his people is an offer to be with him forever. And all of the other, listen to me carefully. We talked about this a little bit last week, didn't we? All of the other language that the Bible uses to describe heaven, to describe eternal life, all of the symbolic language, the the golden streets of Revelation and the crystal waters and, you know, even here, the, the, my father's house are many dwelling places. All of it is just a way to get at this truth that we are invited to dwell with God forever. We are invited to be with Jesus forever. That's the promise of heaven. So in that sense, for Jesus to say, I'm the only way to get there is just simple math. It's just simple truth. Of course, he's the only way to be with him forever. You can't have him and not have him at the same time. You can't have him and not go through him to get to him. That's ridiculous, right? That's like saying it's arrogant to say that the only way to keep breathing is to uh, continue to have oxygen around you. Well, no, your, your lungs were made for oxygen, right? If you don't have enough oxygen, your lungs won't work and you'll die. Our hearts were made for Jesus. Our hearts were created for God. If we don't have enough of him, we'll die. If we don't have enough of him, we will be in hell. And that's what Jesus is warning us against. And that's how he is offering himself to us. So in Christ, we have a true home. We have a home. And second, we see here that in Christ, we have a family. We have a family. Some families let us down. Some families are wonderful, and they're a joy to be with. But even the best of families are imperfect, aren't they? But we have to remember that every earthly family is nothing less nor more than a picture of the eternal family. A picture of the one eternal family. Did you know there was a family before God created man and woman? That's what we call the Trinity. That's really what the Trinity is. It's the the family of God. It's Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Understand that the terms Father and Son are not human terms that were used to describe God for lack of anything better to describe him. Rather, the relationship, humanly speaking, of Father and Son was created to illustrate the eternal truth of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son 
and then also ultimately God the Holy Spirit. God created the world and humans to join him in his Trinitarian family. Not in the sense that humans become gods or divine in some sense, but in the sense that there is such love passed between Father and Son and Spirit in that Trinitarian family that God says, I want to include others in this love. And so he creates man and woman and he invites us into that family. We are included in God's family. Look at how Jesus talks about this here. In verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus insists that we have a relationship with the Father already through him. Isn't it an amazing statement that Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is insisting that because we have a relationship with him, We already have a relationship with the Father. Okay, fine. Jesus also insists that we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. So jump ahead to verse 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. And again, down in verses 25 and 26. These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus insists not only that we have a relationship with the Father, but that we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Look at what else he says in this chapter. He insists that we have a relationship with him, the Son, Look at verses 18 and 19. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. He says, I'm not going to leave you completely alone. I'll come to you. In other words, brothers and sisters, throughout chapter 14 of John, we see Jesus insisting that we have an ongoing relationship with the Father. We have an ongoing relationship with the Son. We have an ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit. There are no other members of the Godhead. That's the full trinity right there. And we are invited into this relationship. We have, in Christ, a family. We are part of the family of God. Look at what he says in verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, listen, and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Isn't that a precious statement of Jesus? The father, the son, and by extension, the spirit come and make their home with us. We are part of the family of God. 
This has implications for our understanding of the church as the family of God. Usually when we use that phrase, family of God, we're thinking about the church on earth, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ. What we have to understand is that the reason that the church is the family of God is because the family of God pre-existed the church. The family of God was just that, the God family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are part of a family with each other because we are part of the family of God. You see? In Christ, we have a family. In Christ, we have a home. In Christ, we have a family. In Christ, we have a story. Origin stories are important. We want to know why Batman became Batman, right? We want to know why Superman became Superman. We don't care about the Marvel characters because they're substandard anyway, right? I just said that to, to get Josh mad at me. I, but we, we care about origins. We care about our origins. I, I'm convinced, actually, that's one of the reasons that we care so much about genealogies, that we do ancestral research. We want to know where our ancestors came from, how they got here. And there's some value in that, but only a little bit of value, right? Because ultimately, it doesn't really change my day-to-day -day life uh, when my ancestors came to the New World, or, or if they came over on the Mayflower, or if they fought in the Civil War, or Revolutionary War, or whatever. It doesn't mean anything for my day-to-day -day life, does it? But we still need to know who we are at heart and how we came to be who we are, what our story is. Jesus tells us the story that has been given to us. He tells us we've been adopted into a story, just as we've been adopted into a family, and the family has become ours, so the story of the family has become ours as well. Now, you need to follow as I go through these steps, because there's several steps in what I'm about to describe to you. First of all, we learn here that our story is the Holy Spirit's story. Look at what he says in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Now we're used to just seeing that in isolation, seeing that Jesus is promising peace to his followers, and that gives us some comfort, right? We take peace from that. But understand in the context of John 14 what Jesus is saying. He gives us a peace that the world does not give, a peace that the world cannot understand. But Jesus has just recently told us about something else that he gives that the world cannot understand either. So if you go back to chapter 14, verse 17, he says that he's going to give us the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So on the one hand, he says he gives us a peace that the world cannot comprehend and cannot give. And he also tells us that he gives us the Holy Spirit whom the world cannot receive or understand either. In other words, Jesus is saying that he is giving us Peace, that's just another way of saying that he's giving us the Holy Spirit. Or to put it another way, the way that Jesus communicates his peace to us is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he reminds us of what Jesus said. All right? Verse 26 and 27. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He'll bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit, his ministry in us is to teach us and remind us of what Jesus has said. That is to say, to teach us and remind us the story of the gospel. The Holy Spirit constantly tells us 
the story of Jesus. He points us to Jesus. He opens our eyes to understand what the scriptures have to tell us about Jesus. Actually, it reminds me. <laughs> it reminds me again of C.S. Lewis and something that he said in uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Chronicles of Narnia where the character Lucy has, has, has read a story in a book, and it's a great story. It's a powerful story, and it's a magic book. And after it's closed, she doesn't remember the story anymore, but she wishes she did because it was so powerful, and she found herself in it, and she realized that she was part of the story. And, and in the book, it says, after she had closed the book, she couldn't remember anything except that it had been about a cup and a sword and a green hill. There's actually a whole lot of meaning there that we're not, <laughs> we're not going to talk about. But she wanted to get back in the story, and she was so upset that she couldn't remember the story. And she talks to the great Christ figure in the story, Aslan, and she asks him, could I, just, could I just get the story one more time? And he says, I will be always telling you that story. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always telling us the story of the gospel. That's his ministry to us. He reminds us of the truth of Jesus, the story that we're given is the Holy Spirit's story. The Holy Spirit's story is Christ's story. The Holy Spirit's ministry to his people is teaching them this. Christ's story, furthermore, is the Father's story. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Remember, I told you I'd be jumping around in this chapter a little bit. John 14, 10, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Why does Jesus equate his words with the works of the Father? Do you notice that in verse 10? We would expect Jesus to say, the words that I speak, I do not speak on my own authority, but I speak the words that the Father gave me. And he actually does say that later on in the chapter. But here he says, I do not speak these words on my own authority, but the Father does his works. What's the connection between the works of the Father and the words of Jesus? Well, it's also clear from here and elsewhere in John that when Jesus talks about the works of the Father, he's talking about his own works too. He doesn't do his own works. He does the works of the Father. And what works does Jesus do in John? He turns water into wine, right? He causes a paralytic to walk. He raises the dead. He feeds thousands. And in John's gospel especially, these works, which are Jesus' works, but they're also the works of the Father, these are meant to validate his words. They're meant to be visual images of his words. He is saying, in essence, I am the one who raises the dead. I am true life. I am the one who gives life and meaning and mobility. I am the one who feeds the hungry. I am the one who brings the best wine to the party. He's saying something about himself, isn't he? And so Jesus here, by saying, these words are not mine, but, but they're the works of the Father, he's saying his story is the Father's story. So the Holy Spirit speaks to us. The Holy Spirit reminds us of everything that Jesus taught. Jesus is saying everything that he said and did is from the Father. It's the Father's story. So what is the Father's story? What is the Father's story? Look at what he says in verses 28 towards the end of the chapter. 
You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go. What does Jesus mean here when he says that the ruler of the world is coming, but has no claim on him? We know, of course, the ruler of the world is a reference to the devil, right? The devil is coming, and Jesus has identified the devil previously in John's gospel as someone who is a murderer from the beginning. And so, in a sense, what Jesus is doing is he's preparing the disciples for the fact that he, Jesus, will be murdered. He's going to be arrested and, and crucified. He's going to die. And so, in a sense, that's going to be the work of this murderer, the ruler of this world. But here, Jesus insists that though Indeed, he is going to be murdered, and though it's going to look like the ruler of this world has been victorious, Jesus says, I want you disciples, I want you, my people, to understand he has no claim on me. He is not the one in control of what's happening. Jesus says, I am doing what my Father has commanded. Elsewhere, Jesus has said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Jesus is insisting that everything he's doing is going according to the Father's plan, the Father's story. What is the Father's plan? What is the Father's story? It is what the Father has commanded Jesus, that he would die. In other words, it's the gospel. This is the Father's story. It's the story of substitution. It's the story of redemption. And it's the story that the Father has been telling from the very beginning. That's what Jesus means all through John's gospel when he says, I'm not speaking on my own authority. I'm speaking what I've been taught by the Father. He's saying, this isn't new to you. This is what God has been saying all along. It's what he's been saying in Leviticus and Numbers. It's what he's saying in Deuteronomy. It's what he's saying in the life of David and in the Psalms. Everywhere. It's the story of God who is merciful to his people. The story of God who is not willing to leave his people in the self-damnation which they have incurred upon themselves. It is God saying, I will save. It's the story of the gospel. And this story, Jesus says, is yours. We're brought in to this story. We have been changed by this story. If you have bent the knee to Jesus, if you have felt the movement of the Holy Spirit that opens your eyes to the truth of who Jesus is, then this is your story. We have a story to tell to the nations. This is the story. Jesus saves in Christ, we have a home and a family and a story. And finally, we have a mission. We need to know what our purpose is. We need to know what our mission is. I was listening to a sermon this week by, you guessed it, Tim Keller. And he was quoting an essay by Dorothy Sayers, who was talking about the impact of World War II on the working classes of England. And Keller quotes Dorothy Sayers as pointing out, that, uh, that the, when soldiers came back from World War II, they were universally happier than they had been before they left for World War II. They had a greater sense of contentment. They reported feeling more satisfied in their jobs. And Sayers was suggesting that the reason for that is because they had experienced what it means to have a mission, to have a purpose. It wasn't because they had gone out and really enjoyed being in the war. It wasn't because they were getting so much money from the war, from being soldiers, 
or even because they uh, bettered their position. They were all equal when they started out, you know? It was because they had a purpose, they had a mission. A mission is important, isn't it? What is our mission? Well, it's to obey Christ's command. Look at what he says in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And verse 24, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Our mission is to obey the command of Christ, and the command of Christ is the same thing as the story which the Father tells. It's the gospel. So we can see this in a lot of different places throughout the New Testament, and I'm not going to spend more time this morning going through it, but, but this is the command of Jesus. It's the command that he gives them when he rises from the dead and sees them. It's the command he gives them right before he ascends into heaven. It's to take this story. This is our story. This is our mission. Now, what does any of this have to do with power? You know, the title of the sermon this morning was, In Christ We Are Powerful. And what I've been saying to you all along is that the power to fulfill our mission flows out of our identity as those who belong to the family of God. So where does power fit into all this? Well, to see that, and in conclusion, I want you to look back at those two verses where we started. Verses 12 and 13. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Have you ever wondered what that phrase means, what that sentence means, greater works than these? Jesus raised the dead. Jesus fed 5,000. Greater works than these will he do? What does Jesus mean there? I think in the context of John's gospel and in the context of this 14th chapter, it's pretty clear that Jesus is not saying that those who believe in me will do greater miracles than I do. He's not saying that all of his followers are going to be able to raise the dead. We, sure, we see some of that in the book of Acts, in the, in the ministry of the apostles. We see some of them doing a lot of the same types of miracles. But if our conclusion here is that all of us should be able to raise the dead and feed 5,000 and turn water into wine, wouldn't that be nice? That's not the point. We don't all have that power. Jesus' point here is something else. The works in this case that he is speaking about is the works that relate to the proclamation of the gospel. All of Jesus' miracles, all of the miracles of the apostles, they all validated and pointed to and were symbolic of the truth of Jesus' salvation. So what Jesus is saying is, those who follow me will do greater works in the sense that they will be able to do more to proclaim the gospel. They will be able to do more to bring more people into the kingdom. They will do more to advance this message. And indeed, when you view it through that lens, you realize that that's exactly what's happened throughout church history. Jesus, when he died, was being followed by 11 men and some women. We don't know how many women, but it was a small group of people. That was the church. That was the kingdom. But then as you go through the book of Acts, you see the church growing exponentially. And now when you look around the world, you see millions and billions of followers of Jesus. And that's not an exaggeration. There are billions. And then if you take in all of world history into account, we start talking about trillions of people who come to faith in Jesus. Greater works than these will they do.
This is power. And where does the power come from? Look at verses 15, 16, 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. This is the source of the power. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives the power. He is the one who, by the Scriptures and the Gospel, gives the right to become children of God. This is the power that we need. So here is the conclusion of the message today and the conclusion of this four-week series as a whole. We are powerful for the mission that we have been entrusted with. The mission of telling the story of Jesus, the mission of being witnesses to the kingship of Jesus, we have the power to do it because of who we are. We are loved, we are righteous, we are changed, we are part of the family of God. Brothers and sisters, know your power in the Lord. Take a moment in silent thought and prayer. Thank God for what he's done for you and ask him to fill you with joy in going about the mission.